Hello, my name is Kristen Gutu, and this is Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Today's guest speaker is Lindsay Lee Wallace, who I am so excited to have on the show. She is a freelance health and culture writing and has experience in publicity, publishing, freelance writing, SEO, copywriting, research, and so much more. And she is now starting her career in reporting. So we're going to navigate AI in writing and if it is a threat to creative and journalistic writers. So Lindsay, there's a lot to talk about regarding AI. So can you give us your thoughts on whether it's a real threat and if you think it will replace writers? Uh, Yeah, and also thank you so much for having me, Kristen. This is uh, really fun and I'm very excited by your whole podcast and I've been very much enjoying it. So thank you for inviting me. Um, So I feel like when when we talk about whether AI can replace writers, I feel like the question comes up of whether it's capable of producing content that is as fill in the blank as what human writers can produce, whether the blank is, you know, beautiful or moving or representative or factual or um, efficient. And whatever you put in the blank changes your answer to the question because I think that AI can probably work more quickly than I can, but I don't think it's demonstrated that it can work more factually or more um, or produce, you know, something that is as like compassionate or empathetic as what a human can produce. But the question it feels like is, you know, who's in power and what are their priorities? Are they prioritizing speed or are they prioritizing quality? And if the answer is speed, which I feel like is often the case under capitalism, then I can't imagine being replaced by AI, which is very unnerving for me here at the beginning of my career. And that's interesting you say that because I completely agree. I don't think that AI will replace writers because of that niche human quality that I think is necessary. But then if, again, it matters. Who? What are we prioritizing? So with that said, um, you mentioned that speed is one of the things that is a trade-off, but do you think that there is much else to offer? Do you think that the quality of the content will reach similar levels or? I mean, I feel like I am, obviously I'm at like sort of the limits of my knowledge in terms of technology, because that's not my specialty, but I believe that if it became the sole purpose of many, many very smart people to make AI write as well as they possibly could, that they could at least improve it beyond what it is today. And I, you know, believe fundamentally that it still would not have the, I don't know, like the essence of what makes something artistic meaningful when it's created by a human, that that would be lost if it were created by technology, even if that technology had been honed to be really good at what it was doing. Um, And then the question sort of becomes like, why would that be our sole focus? Why would the best minds of our generation faced with all the issues we have in the world today decide that the most important thing they could be doing with their intelligence and resources was making robots that write better than I do? (laughs) Um, I, 
you know, I'm flattered by all the attention, but I feel like there are other problems to solve. So I guess I feel like speed is one thing. And I know that, you know, there are like, there are data sets that human eyes get fatigued parsing that computers can parse more quickly. And whether or not you call that AI or machine learning feels like a semantic issue that's getting really muddied right now by all the hype around this. Um, and I feel like it's valuable to say, you know, we can replace jobs that humans find like onerous with technology and then humans can check the technology's work. But it feels relevant that there will always need to be humans checking the technology's work because like, as we've seen, it lies or not lies because that implies like intention, but it it is wrong. No matter how much objectivity we ascribe to computers at the end of the day, they're still very capable of just getting things incorrect. And if we are ascribing objectivity to them and believing that they're going to be right about everything, which I think we have a tendency to do, then we're not going to check their work. And it leads to like, you know, people having falsehoods printed about them in news sources that are using AI to write and things like that. Um, I, again, I couldn't agree more. And I'm thinking of an example you mentioned earlier, where you said that you share the same name with another writer and how that's <laughs> affecting how search engines are labeling your work. Can you mention that? Yeah, I am. Um, so there's like this tool, Muckrack, that aggregates um, different pieces that a journalist has written and it automatically creates a page for you and starts linking to all of your bylines. And it's supposed to be a database that is useful to you as a journalist and useful to publicists who want to get in touch with journalists. But if there's another person who has the same name as you, which is relatively common, then it can easily put somebody else's writing under your name or vice versa. And then it goes from being, you know, this really useful tool to misrepresenting who wrote what in ways that can be, you know, at, at best, it's just, you know, oh, no, I, I didn't write this and I need to change it. Or, you know, like I'm getting pitches from publicists about a beat that's not relevant to me. And at worst, it can be, you know, people are assuming that I'm the person who wrote something very controversial and I'm getting harassed online, as happens to journalists all the time. And that hasn't happened to me, but I can just very much see this issue leading to that. And, you know, Muckrack is not even like employing some kind of advanced AI to put people's bylines under their names, as far as I know. But I feel like that also kind of connects to a lot of things are getting called AI right now that I don't know if they really are. It just is like very buzzy to use that term when you're referring to your technology. And I think that like as a lay person who doesn't have an advanced understanding, it definitely makes it hard for me to understand when I'm just consuming hype and when something is actually artificial intelligence. Yeah, no, there's definitely, uh, like you said, hype with all these companies pretending they're employing intense AI when it's really much simpler than that. But again, like you said, people with the same name are being lumped together and it's easier to go through the data having this one person than spending extra time and extra code and cost to differentiate between all of you, which then <laughs> brings up totally different questions because right now it's an inconvenience of are you getting credit for the work you're writing? Is your work properly being published? But then on top of that, when data is collected, which one of you is being recorded historically? And then how does that further influence algorithms down the line? 
So if you share your name with a male author and you're labeled as his gender, then how does your writing and your influence as a journalist and your identity get erased? And something else that um, I wanted to mention was we were discussing representation. And so already in writing, we see very one-sided perspectives, regardless of whose side that is. So can you give your perspective on um, being new to reporting and the different biases you're seeing regarding whose stories are being published and whose sides are being shared? Yeah, I mean, so I feel like I am beginning to try to have a career in this field at a moment when it's contracting pretty dramatically and publications that were part of, you know, the like digital media boom are folding or going bankrupt or laying off hundreds of people. And in like a a profession that is like simultaneously, you know, associated with like the origin story of this country and is that old and embedded with like hegemonic power structures to that degree, but also is one that is considered like, you know, chronically online and like totally at the mercy of the internet it's interesting to see the like the speed at which organizations and publications will roll back promises to like increase the diversity of their reporting staff and like represent more kinds of stories. And I think that it is, you know, I think that it's known that journalism has this um, objectivity standard that if you're the person who's going to report on an issue, then you should be someone who doesn't have yourself an opinion on that issue. And I think that we are increasingly realizing that it's pretty impossible to find a human who doesn't have in some way an opinion or relation to a human issue. And, you know, this demonstrated itself really dramatically in terms of like black reporters not being offered opportunities to report on the Black Lives Matter protester in the summer of 2020 because of the belief that they would be biased when the, you know, supposed argument that a white reporter writing about that topic doesn't have any bias or personal stake in it is false. And it just is enshrining the position of, you know, whiteness as the standard and the default and a neutral thing when it's very much not. And I know that that's a bias that's reproduced by AI and by algorithms because they learn from our human flaws and parse those things to create their own opinions. And again, opinions, I'm like using all these words that have intention and humanity ascribed in them but i know that technology doesn't have those things it's just picking up on ours so i think that you know there are like for example right now it's june and it's pride month and i have more opportunities as a queer writer than i do much of the rest of the year because my specific perspective which is like considered maybe a niche thing is warranted right now but isn't otherwise at other times And I say that, you know, like not having been, it's not like I've been denied important opportunities or anything, but certainly like with my relative privilege as a white cis woman, I know that whatever degree I'm seeing like, oh, I'm I'm getting these opportunities in June that I don't get the rest of the year is amplified more times over for people from other marginalized communities and replacing, you know, the few people from marginalized communities who have had the opportunity to get onto, you know, God forbid, a staff position at a publication with computers is going to not only prevent those actual humans from having access to the resources and the money and the 
career building to make their lives better, but also it's going to take away from the coverage of those publications because the AI that you would replace a human writer with is replicating the same biases that we have. It's replicating the idea of a white, cis, straight, male perspective as neutral and further reinforcing, you know, the the myth of objectivity in journalism. Yeah, that's so interesting that you make that point because I think intersectionality is often very overlooked and you mention your queerness, but you're also white and cis. So it's all these levels of bias and marginalization, but also a level of privilege. So it's like, how are we encoding these biases on different levels? And how are more intersectional people being compounded by all these biases? Definitely. And And I think, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, Just, I think that, you know, there is a way to make your identity really consumable in a digital way, you know, to like put out again and again and again that you are like, for me, that I am like queer and that that's something that's easy for publicists to parse and for, you know, whatever technology that they use to parse to figure out like, Oh, okay, so we're gonna send that that person this email about this, you know, gay movie. But it obviously it falters when you're confronted with a person whose identities are not so easy to like fit into a Twitter bio or a soundbite or whatever other like offhanded thing I can say right now. That it's like it can't represent the entirety of human experience. It encourages us to flatten ourselves to be easier to parse so that we get these opportunities. But like the opportunities are not as meaningful if we can't come to them as full people. And something else that this is making me think of, um, if writers become, if human writers become obsolete and we really do turn to AI, I mentioned this point a lot, but in America, 90% of AI experts are men and 70% are white. So if we have AI writing marketing campaigns for a very human audience and they're using training data on like you said writers that are historically white cis middle class men then how can they learn how to target the queer community if they do not have a database of how different the queer audience is from other audiences that they may have targeted in different marketing campaigns. So it's like, what information are you using to make your judgment? And I mean, like, to what degree is it beneficial for a minority group to, to be easily targetable by marketing or anything else? Like, you know, there's like the double-edged sword of being accepted under capitalism gives you access to resources. You see yourself represented and that can be genuinely meaningful, but also like, what are you giving up when you decide to be like palatable in that way? And I think it's like, you know, I, I, a dimension of like, I'm not like a horrible tech pessimist in every possible way. And I also still don't see a dimension of like AI optimism being, you know, it's okay because it doesn't get us, so it can't sell us this. It's interesting, though, because I feel like that is a true point. Do you think that you'll come to a time where you use AI in your writing? Are you already using it for the process? I mean, not like knowingly, although I'm sure that in like the Google Drive terms and conditions I've agreed to, I, you know, told it that it could train its 
burgeoning AI tools on my Google Docs or whatever. I have no idea if that's true. I probably shouldn't just say things like that. Um, but I, not consciously, not deliberately. I mean, at the end of the day, I just, you know, I have never like encountered any kind of tool that made exclusively correct suggestions. And there are also suggestions it might make that are like correct by one standard, but not correct by another. And at the end of the day, you're always going to have to check things to make sure that there aren't mistakes that you're just like blithely letting through the gates because of your trust in technology. And, you know, in some cases, that initial filter to get out like really egregious grammar mistakes might be useful to people. Um, but it's never going to be better than just having somebody check something and you're never going to be able to forego having somebody check something. So I always just kind of am like, this feels like an extra step to me that I don't need because at the end of the day, I'm still going to have to check it. So I might as well just check it now. Yeah, I personally agree with that. Um, something else that comes to mind is I think of like these romance novels that are being written by ghostwriters and um how you know there's a lot of fluff and people just buy it and they eat it up so do you think that the more ai generates content the lower quality content people will be satisfied with or do you think that our quality will remain high i mean i think that there's like a a I feel like the people who produce AI tools have already demonstrated themselves as having like a misunderstanding of why people like certain types of things. Like I know that romance novels are widely seen as being kind of like trashy or like lower quality. And there are definitely romance novels that are like not well-written and, and well-plotted and whatever, but like the community around romance novels is something that people love engaging in and people love to follow the romance authors that they like consume the work of and interact with them. And there are fandoms around that and there's fan fiction and all of these like really innately thoroughly human things that I think are connected to content that people, you know, people in tech who are trying to find ways to automate things don't understand that will be lost and that people will not want to engage with in the same way. So in terms of like the quality of the content, I think that, you know, the worst book that I've ever read in my life could have been written by a computer, but you know, whatever fans that book did have would be halved by the number of people who don't care about something if it doesn't have an author attached to it and if it doesn't have a community attached to it. Yeah, it's interesting. So I want to hear your thoughts on right now the strike going on with the Writers Guild of America. Do you have any thoughts to share? Um, I do. I mean, like, I think it's funny because I guess my understanding is that like originally when the Writers Guild was negotiating their contract the fact that they had included that they wanted protections against being replaced by AI or priced out by AI that was kind of supposed to be like a freebie compared to the other things they were asking for because it was seen as being so obvious that they would want that and that there was like some surprise on the part of the WGA when they got pushback about that point and it immediately became clear the degree to which studios were hoping to be able to invest in AI technology to save money in terms of writing. And, um, you know, the Directors Guild also just, they negotiated a contract for themselves where it seems like they have given a lot of leeway to studios to use their work to train AI and potentially eventually be able to replace them with AI, which I'm surprised by. And I think that 
I mean, it's the same, you know, the same structural issues that are true with journalism are true in creative writing that, you know, the the people who have the most access to be able to do that kind of thing are usually going to be, you know, the most privileged people. And also that that leads to one sided stories and we miss a lot of meaningful art in that way. And I think that, you know, writing is seen as like a like an artistic pursuit and a vocation and you're lucky just to be able to do it especially creative writing like you should be willing to be paid nothing and do it for exposure and put up with being treated terribly and all this stuff and like it's a job like yes it's a wonderful job but like you need to pay people for their work especially when it makes you billions of dollars as is the case with what the writers guild of america does so i think that you know it's foolhardy to believe that you could replace humans with computers in any regard. And I also just don't understand ultimately like the intention behind it. Like there are things that humans shouldn't have to do. And those are the ones that we should be trying to figure out another way to take care of. But like, why are we trying to build a society where pursuits that people enjoy are no longer available to them? Like who benefits from that? Yeah, that is well said. And you mentioned that a lot of stories would be recycled. You say something of the uh, in those lines. And you also write about this dead mother trope in media. Can you talk about that trope and how AI might run with other similar outdated tropes or, or overdone tropes? Yeah, um, well, so I wrote a piece for... Uh, the publication Shonda Land, I think it was like two years ago now, about the dead mom trope in media, um, which I wrote because of my dead mom. <laughs> but um, I had come to notice it more and more because it started affecting me more. Whereas previously, I I had just sort of noticed it in terms of like, oh, yes, it's that thing again, where this character's mom is dead. And that is sort of shorthand for the idea that they have a tragic backstory or they are missing a certain amount of nurturing or they've had to take care of themselves or their family and i feel like you know what is like true for a lot of people and simultaneously a unique story kind of gets flattened into this easy way to characterize somebody in your movie or your tv show or your book without having to give them backstory and you know a, a recent example of this maybe is the the Sam Levinson, the weekend show, The Idol, which has a main character whose mother has passed away and having a dead mom is a huge part of her whole deal so far in the episodes that I've seen, but it's not explored in any meaningful way, nor is she really characterized in any meaningful way. It's just a quick way for them to let us know like, okay, she's broken. And that kind of laziness, I think, is exactly the sort of thing that will be duplicated when you're writing stories by algorithm, because you'll be picking up on what has been done many times before, what is a what is an efficient solution plot-wise. And that efficiency when it's produced by a computer, I think it's just going to inherently be a lot colder and hold less meaning than, you know, the like graceful efficiency of a human making a plot run perfectly. Like there are meaningful stories that have a dead mother in them that are, you know, personally meaningful to me. But seeing something that is that weighty and that universal just like thrown around as convenient. It feels like a harbinger of what AI writing is capable of is like making the convenient choice every time. I don't even think it's just lazy. I think it's a lame excuse of writing a female character without <laughs> actually having to 
waste time or energy on a female character and then or hire a female actor yeah so it's kind of like no but actually like oh yeah see we mentioned a woman so it's like equal opportunity but Uh and it's it's someone's sad dead mom and some man's sad dead wife and you know he's so messed up about it and we can see endless footage of him crying looking at her photo or whatever but she's not going to say a single line don't worry about it exactly so it's not even her history or her story it's just like oh she's the plot line so yeah yeah so I think that will be replicated in the sense that all these stories put the focus on what really matters right like oh that's the backstory that's over that's in the past let's move on to the present and yeah. so like whose perspective will AI be focusing when they write those algorithms yeah and like what what does it say like the w- one of our like oldest biases is the idea of like motherhood is making you less of a person and making you just like endlessly giving unto you know your husband and your children and whatever and the like ultimate version of that feels like it's like not even a human didn't even get to feel real things when they wrote about this woman who isn't even real in this story that like has no human residence in it whatsoever it's just like the ultimate you know screw women this is not important she doesn't matter in this story (laughs) So that leads me to my next question, because it is this idea where if AI generates this content, it is going to approach it from a different perspective because it does not have that conscious ability. So do you think that AI is going to influence your writing style or the way you write so that you can, I don't know, stay relevant? I don't really think this (laughs) is an issue, but I'm curious if you thought of this. Well, like, it's interesting because um, there are, like, tricks to writing for, um, like, search engine optimization or SEO, like, things you're supposed to do to make whatever you've written rank higher when somebody Googles a specific thing in the search results, so they'll click on it and buy the, you know, whatever is being sold on that page. And those things are, you know, like, oh, include a number in your headline keep your sentences short and uh, include, you know, phrases that people are more likely to Google. And that's already sort of like that whole field has risen and kind of begun to crumble in that a lot of people consider Google to be basically useless for finding good information now because so many people are writing in this specific way on top of which there's, you know, computer generated content that's written in this specific way. And you just can't trust it anymore. So when I think about like how AI is going to influence my writing, it's interesting because I know that it's being trained on real human writing of great quality. And also all of that SEO nonsense and those articles that are essentially hollow. So it feels like a feedback loop. Like I don't know where me influencing it and it influencing me end and begin, which is like a dystopian answer. But yeah. Or how it influences the people you want it to reach versus the audience that you don't even have in mind when you're writing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, Uh, I have no idea how it gets scraped and translated and scrambled by like, I don't like a like a large language learning model, something that I've written could be repurposed in there in a way that I wouldn't anticipate to reach an audience that I couldn't even have fathomed. Yeah. I love that. 
So this is a bit tangential. This is my final question, but I want to hear your thoughts because I believe this. So I want to hear your <laughs> side. But do you think that AI generated content, whether it's for marketing or creative reasons, do you think that it could essentially influence policy in the end and the way people think on a more societal level? I mean, I I feel like it depends on how quickly we become aware of the possibility that something that we're reading is like produced by a computer and not by a person. Because I know that there's, you know, already been like a situation where a lawyer created a brief with help from ChatGPT and it fabricated like case law to cite. And the judge pointed out, you know, these cases that you've cited here aren't real. And the lawyer, you know, I assume was very embarrassed by that. But <laughs> had the had the judge been as incompetent as the lawyer and not noticed, then that would be a situation where fabrications on the part of AI had helped influence policy. And like, I think that, you know, in like a, in a less obvious and more insidious way, when more, when a greater proportion of the content on the internet reflects like the current power structure that we have, because it is trained to reproduce our biases as a society and more people are consuming content that reflects those biases at a greater rate then we all are more likely to have them embedded in our ways of thinking, including those of us who are influencing policy in some capacity. Uh, and I know that, you know, that's already the case. It's like the the way that where you get your news from and the media that you interact with, even the creative media influences the way that you see the world, which can be a really powerful force for good, but is scary to think about when you consider, you know, a computer being behind most of that and then who is behind that computer and therefore who is really helping influence that policy. Which is why we need people like you reading, writing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and other people going through all the material and determining which of it is real, which of it is valuable, and which, which of it is disinformation. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm really um, stunned by like the the volume of just complete lies that I know people have directed at them and how much easier it will be to do that with a specific goal and target people with falsehoods and disinformation when you have, you know, an algorithm that can write those falsehoods for you. And like, those people are a powerful voting block as we've seen with like, even, you know, town hall meetings about mask mandates, like people who have been targeted with inaccurate information about masks can strike down a mask mandate for a school and imagine how much more quickly and efficiently that whole process can work when they're being targeted with like the speed and precision of computers. Yeah, I read this crazy fact that stated that disinformation travels at seven times the rate of factual information oh, so yeah it just shows you again why we need real writers and people clarifying it yeah I feel I feel like I I don't mean to sound so pessimistic like it's not like I it's not like I don't think that you know there's promise in just like even our desire to innovate and our like desire to create technology in our own image I think is like 
on its own a little charming. And I like that we want to keep solving problems. I just wish that we were solving real problems instead of the capitalist problem of, oh no, humans want to live lives worth living. Like, my God, there are real issues. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Sorry. And, and then on top of it, you're mentioning why should we teach AI to write creative content when people want to do that? And there's so many jobs that people don't want to do that should be automated. And then you compound that by the fact that to teach this code and to train it and run it requires so much energy that further damages the planet. And mm -hmm. so it's like you're taking jobs from people, then you're making their physical environments worse. How can we redirect this so it's a more equitable trade-off? Definitely. And you also, you know, you need humans doing quality control, which in some cases is just tedious, which, you know, tedium is genuinely terrible for people, but also can be like traumatic. Like there are instances of people whose job it is to review either the, you know, the information that gets incorporated into open AI's data set that it learns from, or, you know, people who review content that's been flagged on social media, getting PTSD from having to look at all day long, you know, the most horrible traumatic things that you can possibly imagine to make sure that somebody else using this tool on the other end doesn't have to look at it. And I feel like, you know, ordinarily, those are jobs that are not happening in the United States, and they're not happening within the direct sight line of the person who's benefiting from them. So it's easier for us to think like, wow, this technology, it's, you know, incredible, or even my perspective, this technology is horrible, it's replaced me, it's taken my job, when the reality is that it took my job and turned it into a worse job that pays less that is giving somebody who is thousands of miles away from me, post traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> and it's like, and as you said, making the planet less habitable for all of humans. And it is like, Obviously, the people who see those negative ramifications first are people in the global south and people who are coerced into taking jobs that pay terribly and treat them poorly. But, you know, those consequences won't stay with the most marginalized among us forever. We're all going to feel them, including, you know, the people at the very top someday when the planet is on fire. God, I sound like such a pessimist. I'm so sorry. No, I mean... Um, we'll be optimistic. I believe that there's a good future out there. But it's true. I mean, we need to rethink some things environmentally, uh, sustainably from a human rights perspective, um, both do domestically and internationally, when we think of how it exploits different people, whether it's writers here, or like you said, those who parse through graphic images for cents per image or even less. So yeah, yeah, so there's a lot to do here. There is, there is. And I am, I'm genuinely like, I exist in my, you know, plane of like pessimism because I know that there are people like you who actually understand these things and are doing work to help make them better. So thank you. So, so with that, um, on the final note, are you optimistic about the future or do you end on a pessimistic note? I, um, gosh, I think that it is, I don't think that you can continue trying to make things better if you fully allow yourself to adopt a pessimistic worldview. And so 
I haven't. I just talk about all the things that I am scared about while privately hoping that I will be proven wrong and doing, you know, what I hope is work that will contribute to making things not as terrible as I fear they will be. Okay. So we're on the same page. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to have this conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Technically Biased. Tune in next week for another discussion regarding biases in relation to tech. Have a great day, everyone.